As a person with a very deep voice, I'm hired all the time for advertising campaigns. But a deep voice doesn't sell B2B. And advertising on the wrong platform doesn't sell B2B either. That's why if you're a B2B marketer, you should use LinkedIn ads. LinkedIn has the targeting capabilities to help you reach the world's largest professional audience. That's right, over 70 million decision makers all in one place. All the big wigs, then medium wigs. Also small wigs who are on the path to becoming big wigs. Okay, that's enough about wigs. LinkedIn ads allows you to focus on getting your B2B message to the right people. So, does that mean you should use ads on LinkedIn instead of hiring me, the man with the deepest voice in the world? Yes. Yes, it does. Get started today and see why LinkedIn is the place to be to be. We'll even give you a $100 credit on your next campaign. Go to linkedin.com slash results to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash results. Terms and conditions apply. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. The Telegraph. The Telegraph. Podcasts. I'm David Knowles, and this is Ukraine. The latest. Today, we talk to freelance journalist Sergio Olmos, who's in Kyiv as his time in Ukraine draws to a close. We also discuss recent remarks by Angela Merkel. And as we passed nine months since the start of the full-scale invasion this week, we reflect on the conflict's major turning points. This hideous and barbaric venture of Vladimir Putin must end in failure. Putin's war in Ukraine has destabilized energy markets the world over. Nobody's going to break us. We're strong. We're Ukrainians. Every weekday afternoon, we sit down with leading journalists from the Telegraph's London newsroom and our teams reporting on the ground to bring you the latest news and analysis on the war in Ukraine. It's Friday, the 25th of November, day 275. And today, I'm joined by Associate Editor Dominic Nichols, our assistant comment editor, Francis Sternley, freelance journalist, Sergio Olmos, who's calling in live from Kiev. And finally, my colleague Stephen Edgington, on his own off-script podcast, spoke to analyst Mark Galliotti about the war in Ukraine. We have a 10-minute sample of their conversation at the end of this podcast, but do go to off-script from The Telegraph to hear more. I started by asking Don for the latest news from Ukraine. Well, hi, David. Good afternoon, everybody. It's been another very violent 24 hours in Ukraine. Five killed in the city of Hezon. Uh, missiles sent across the river by uh, from Russian forces. This is exactly why over the last couple of days we've seen Ukrainian authorities trying to get the civilians out of the city. I mean, we think there are still tens of thousands in there, so it's going to be that's very difficult to do. A lot of people obviously don't want to leave their homes, especially now that the, the Russians have gone. So it's entirely understandable why they why they do not want to leave in the in a grip of a, a, a you know increasingly cold uh, winter with the energy situation, as we've uh, discussed many many times. So a lot of people still want to stay, and they are um, under the under the threat of constant shelling from from Russia. Hence, uh, hence, a number of people killed today. 
Um, elsewhere, I know Francis is going to talk about energy in more detail shortly, but um, the energy situation is, is, um, has not improved or improved marginally with the provision of aid from, um, from outside the country and the, the, the self-help that Ukraine is able to, able to get some of its systems back up online. But uh, Ukraine's first lady, so Elena Zelenska, has said she, the country is willing to endure years of power cuts. Um, she put it in the context of if there was a chance of joining the European Union. But I think uh, from everything we've seen, that seems to be the, the voice from the voice of the people that they are, that Russia's aim here of terrorising the population into pressurising their political leaders to, to come to some sort of negotiated agreement or ceasefire just isn't going to work. Um, Connected to that, James Cleverly, to Britain's Foreign Secretary. He's in he's in Ukraine at the moment. Um, he was visiting uh, Dmitry Kaleba, the Foreign Minister, and he's also going to have a, an audience with uh, President Zelensky. He has announced uh, some su- a package of hands-on support to help get them through the winter. This includes, so today he's dropped off, I think it was 24 ambulances and six armoured vehicles. I've asked for further details about what these armoured vehicles are, but um, hadn't had anything back yet on that. Um, he's also announced cash for uh, for a fund uh, well, he's running he's got a two day conference next week which we're going to cover uh, we're going to attend and cover this is a, a two day conference on on preventing sexual violence in conflict it's the preventing preventing sexual violence in conflict initiative and it's that wider initiative that he's donated uh, i think nearly three and a half million quid uh, into today for ukraine obviously we've seen some appalling uh, stories out of out of ukraine the way that, um, that some russian soldiers have been using uh, sexual violence as a tool a tool of their conquest um however elsewhere uh, we've had uh, the un human rights chief volker turk he said that since october at least 77 ukrainian civilians have been killed in these russian strikes against infrastructure so he says that um as well as as well as killing 77 civilians millions have been plunged into darkness and, and extreme hardship and he said, this is a quote, millions are being plunged into extreme hardship and appalling conditions of life by these strikes. Taken as a whole, this raises serious problems under international humanitarian law, which requires a concrete and direct military advantage for each object attacked, unquote. My response to that is, yeah, great. So, so what are you going to do about it? This is the UN human rights chief who says, you know, he's quoted, this raises serious problems under international humanitarian law. So what are you doing about it? I'm just staggered. We seem to be inching towards this, this, this position whereby somebody, the UN, hopefully, is going to say, "Look, this is not. This is a war crime." But I mean, they've got to do something about it. Just saying, this is terrible. Is right a step in the right direction? But what are they going to do about it? Anyway, yeah, I, that, I don't. I fear that will not be the last time I, I, you know, go on that minor rant. Um, however, in the same statement, Avogadro also made reference to. The recent news out of Makivka in uh, Luhansk Oblast, this this incident whereby a number of what appear to be Russian soldiers who are seem to be surrendering or making clear they they don't want to take part in hostilities, um, about eight or nine of them, and then another another guy comes out of the building they were hiding in, firing his weapon, and then uh, the the incident suggests that they are all then shot by Ukrainian soldiers who are who are trying to receive their receive their surrender or whatever whatever is happening i won't go into great detail here we, we dissected this in some detail two days ago on the pod so please have a, have a listen to that if you want if you want even more detail i raise it now only because it's back on the agenda because um, mr turk has, has raised it um, i urge everybody to go and find the the video online it is not gory you don't see any any violence you don't see anyone uh, shot or, or killed 
um, you you can hear shots being fired after the after the guy comes around the corner, the Russian guy with a, with a weapon, um, and you know, we know we know what the allegations are. So I just ask, I just urge people to go and have a look for themselves and make their own minds up. And I, I'll say again, as I, I reiterate what I said the other day, you, know, you and I watching this, we will not be able to judge this. We don't see enough on the video. We don't have enough of the other um, data available to us. We, we're obviously not there interviewing people on the ground. So we're not going to be able to say it's a war crime, it's murder, et cetera, et cetera. We, you, we cannot do that. And anybody in in print or on social media or anywhere who suggests that they can pronounce judgment on that right now is, is just trying to hoodwink you basically um because we can't do it there's not been a a the investigation into it is not uh, uh, has not um has not concluded yet so there's no way that anybody can can definitively say one way or the other i mean my as i said my my view at the time which was a couple of days ago go and have a listen to that and, and please make your own mind up a couple more uh, quick updates uh, Croatia has said it's going to train the Ukrainian army. Um, so this is according to Ukraine's defense minister, Alexei Reznikov. Uh, any tr- such training is likely to happen in Poland or Germany, possibly Croatia itself, although that might be a little bit, um, a little bit diplomatically uh, difficult for them. This is part of the EU's military mission to support Ukraine. Um, just one other thing, just for a, for a pause here. So rather interestingly, yesterday, uh, quite late on in the afternoon, there was on the on the ministry, British Ministry of Defence uh, Twitter site um, a statement titled "Update on Ukraine," and this was a statement put out by the UK's Deputy Permanent Representative to the United Nations, James Kariuki, a chap I don't know, never, never met him. However, I thought it was interesting that the MOD were putting out a statement by um, that I would normally expect to come from the Foreign Office for starters. So that that sort of maybe maybe sort of pause for a moment. Secondly, I thought you don't often get these sort of ad hoc statements put out by this. Uh, I'll read you the statement and then, then sort of talk about it very briefly. And the statement said this, quote, Russia is deliberately bombing hospitals and other medical facilities. The World Health Organization has recorded 703 such attacks since February. Russia is trying to achieve with terror and murder what it could not achieve in nine months on the battlefield, unquote. Now, you may remember yesterday we spoke about this because there was in... In yesterday's British Defence Intelligence daily uh, daily tweet, daily summary of, of um, events, a reference to a deliberate bombing of hospitals. And I, I talked about it yesterday. And I mean, we know that hospital and other medical facilities have been hit. But I thought it was very noticeable the, the use by the by a British government organ, as in the Ministry of Defence, and here by Britain's Deputy Permanent Representative to the UK, using the word deliberate. I think that's very significant i've gone back to MOD this morning and 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 they accept that yes that is that is very strong language um they've not yet come back to me i checked just before we came um just before we started this space i will check again throughout the afternoon um because i think this is you know it's hinting at something here between you and me i don't think they're going to share with me the underlying intelligence that allows them to use a word like deliberately however they could um they can either qualify that statement or, or retract it. I don't think they will retract it because it, they've put it out twice now in formal documents. Yesterday in a tweet from the Ministry of Defence and today in another tweet quoting um, you know, the, the UK's rep in the, in the United Nations. So I think there's, there's something quite significant here. Um, as in you know, many people have assessed that Russia is deliberately targeting hospitals and other civilian infrastructure as a means of terror. But to have a government organ here... 
analyze it and use that word i think i think it's significant i don't think i'm on a hobby horse here please let me know if you think if you think i am um but i just want to chase this one down because i thought that was that was very noticeable and having said that was the last point of course i'm uh, i'm wrong i've got one more one more point and this was again yesterday we spoke about Germany's offer to Poland in the wake of the blast last week, this uh, what, what is now assessed to be a, a Ukrainian air defence missile that actually landed in Poland, killed two people. That missile launched, obviously, in response to the, the biggest barrage since February the 24th of Russian um, aerial munitions and cruise missiles. Um, so th- the, the blame there, the blame for the incident, I'm firmly putting it at Russia's door, even though we think it was a Ukrainian missile. In response to that, Germany offered to, to send its uh, US-made, Raytheon, the company, US-made Patriot missiles, air defense systems, to Poland. Poland then said, well, look, don't, don't send them to us. Just keep them going. Send them to Ukraine. Jens Stoltenberg, NATO Secretary General, said this morning it is up to Germany uh, to, to, to send their Patriots to, to Poland, um, not, not, I, not NATO. It's not a NATO decision. Um, it, it's up for the individual nations. He said... He said it's up for individual nations to decide. And he added that end user agreements when you buy weapons and some other arrangements sometimes mean that you do have to consult certain allies about you know who, who produce the weapon. You sometimes need to get permissions about where they can go. Patriot is produced, as I said, by the US company Raytheon. So um, would there be would there be some some issue with sending Patriots to Ukraine? Would, would America worry about certain sensitive technology getting into the hands of, uh, of Russia? As I've said many, many times when it comes to gifting weapons, as soon as you put any weapons onto, onto the battlefield, certainly if you're gifting it to another nation, you have to assume it will eventually end up in the hands of the opposition because places get overrun, um, depots are, are, are destroyed, uh, things are found on the battlefield. So this will happen, and you then have to make a decision as to whether or not you, you want your really sensitive stuff to be, uh, if you're going to gift it, to, to be in, um, in likelihood of being found by um, an enemy. So Jens Soldenberg said NATO will continue to stand with Ukraine for as long as it takes. We will not back down. This is talking uh, ahead of a, it's talking in Brussels, obviously NATO headquarters, ahead of next week's foreign ministers meeting in Bucharest. Uh, and I will take a pause there. Well, thank you very much for that, Dom. Um, Francis, can I come to you quickly? I know Dom said you, you've got some thoughts on the on the energy crisis faced by Ukraine in the wake of the continuing Russian strikes. And then I'd quite like to go straight to Sergio after that, because of course Sergio is, is there and is experiencing it. So Francis Sternley, quite quickly. Yes, well, thank you, David, and uh, good afternoon to our listeners at home and abroad. As you say, and as Dom has already referenced, Ukraine today is battling to get its water and power to millions of people who've been cut off after Russia launched dozens of cruise missile attacks that have crippled the electricity grid. We understand that... uh, you know, the energy grid is on the brink of collapse and that millions are enduring emergency blackouts. I'm reading from some of our sources that in some places the power or water is back on. Others are saying that they're boiling snow on their balconies in order to have clean drinking water. So it just gives you a sense of, of divergent experiences. And as you say, Sergio, it'd be really interesting to hear his insights on this from Kiev um, imminently. So I'm not going to, to talk too much about this. Just wanted to reflect briefly on the remarks of President Zelensky last night he said and I'll quote directly the situation with electricity remains difficult in almost all regions however we are gradually moving away from blackouts every hour we return power to new consumers 
Now, in the situation in, in Kyiv is said to be particularly dire. Um, Vitaly Klitschko has said that 60% of the homes in the capital are still suffering from emergency outages. Water services are being restored, but as I say, it is a gradual process. Just to give a sense of how grand the, the impact of this is in terms of geography, there's a map that's going around at the moment on social media of, uh, that is of Ukraine and those affected areas of electricity and water outages. And it's basically taking the geographical space of Ukraine and supplanting it on a different part of the map of Europe. And it goes all the way from London in the west to Vienna in the east and all the way down to Monaco in the south. And so you've got Belgium, Luxembourg, large parts of Austria, almost the entirety of Switzerland and half of France in that and the east of England. So just to give you a sense of how enormous the scale of these power outages and water are. And as I say, just painting a few scenes from Kiev as well, um, people clutching empty bottles we can see in search of water, people crowded in cafes for power and, um, and, and warmth and all sorts of messages that we can see flying back and forth of people trying to find out when and where electricity and water uh, will be returning. But as I say, I'll hand over to Sergio, who no doubt will have far more detailed insights on this. Well, thank you so much for joining us, uh, Sergio. Yeah, please talk us through what, what you're seeing on the ground. Yeah, mostly what I've, I've been in Kiev for about two weeks now. Uh, I was last in here, saw it. All of this is affecting kind of the rural areas of the liberated villages and towns much more so than the big cities, but even in the big cities, you know, when the missile struck, everybody was out of running water. I think seventy percent of the residents had no electricity, and um, it's really tough. It, and for some people, um, it's tougher than others. I know that there's there's a kind of guilt going around. So if your building has electricity and your friends don't, you feel bad. And and you everybody exchanges text messages or you know on WhatsApp saying like you know do you need to come over to uh, you know, charge your stuff or shower or whatever. And, um, and the, the, the community just in your WhatsApp of all the people that uh, are talking to each other is incredible. I mean, um, then that's the thing that I'm, I'm taking away from this. I, I'm, I'm coming now in eight months here in Ukraine and I'm going to leave soon. And, um, I'm starting to think about what I'm taking away here back to like, you know, my own civil society. And, and one of them is, you know, Nobody goes through any of this alone. Like all of these hardships, right? No running water, which is, it gets very tough after 24 hours. Like you, you want to shower, you want to cook food. Um, if there's no electricity, you can't use an electric stove. Um, you know, it, it, you can't even go to a restaurant because likely everywhere, you know, in your area is also out of the same utilities. And, and that gets very tough. And, and um, but the thing is that nobody goes through it alone. And so like, because of that, you know, uh, there's a there's a humor that develops and a kindness amongst people and um and like last night I I went to a bar for the first time since the missile struck and I know this bar owner and I was just like how are you guys doing and he's like well uh, no running water still but we have electricity finally and so we're back up you know we don't we don't have kegs we can't pump beer but we have cans and uh, so he's like today we made money you know we haven't this week but today we're okay. And uh, it just this humor and just um, and, you know, everybody's going through it. No one is, you know, and it doesn't matter if you're rich or poor. Like, like, you know, I'm in the city center and we didn't have running water here. Like I'm next to, you know, uh, some official buildings and stuff. And like, doesn't matter. You don't have running water. Everybody goes through it. And I think that makes it just much more um, like it, it softens the blow because 
because you're going through something together. Um, and I, and I think about that because, um, you know, it, no one really complains the way you think they would, you know, the minute you'd say, oh, I'm running, I'm running water to someone, they'll say like, well, you know, I have this and, and people share things. And I think about that quite often. Would you say it's a sort of, I mean, everything we're describing sounds a little like, you know, the, the blitz spirit that people talk about and describe that what happened in, 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 in London and in, in, in the Second World War. Is that something you think is, is that analogous to, as to what you're seeing? Absolutely. I, I would I would actually the analogy that I think of is um, this is maybe a, a little too inside, but freelance journalists often pair up in vehicles together when we go out to the field. You know, we share costs and stuff. And sometimes, you know, everybody in the car, you've had a drink or whatever. But really, when you get to know them is when the days are long, you're hungry, you're tired, you're broke, maybe your stories are not going to plan. The, maybe you get shelled. All kinds of things go badly, right? And maybe, you, you know, you don't have enough food. You guys haven't eaten properly in three days. And if somebody pulls out, say, like a, a ba- bag of beef jerky or a protein bar or something, and they eat it, and, they, you know, and, they, and their instinct is not to, sh- to tear it into pieces and share with everyone in the car, that, that's when you really know them. Because, you know, good car, everybody will share the last bag of beef jerky or last water bottle. And, you know, nobody has enough sustenance. But, but because you share it, you can just go through so much more and, and you get through things way easier. And I think that's what's happening on this big scale here in, in Ukraine and in Kiev. I mean, you, you see these uh, like hipsters with these coffee shops where nothing is running. The lights are out. They can't, you know, do pastries. But if they can do espressos, they'll do espressos. Like they'll stay open and, you know, and that just kind of um, like shared suffering and resiliency. Um, it makes all of this stuff seem not as difficult. And, um, and yeah, I, I think about that. Can we go into some of the, the details? I mean, you mentioned, you know, sometimes the water's off, sometimes it's on. Um, it's difficult to, to cook food, obviously, where, if the electricity isn't on. So how, how, do, you, how do you manage that? How, how do you plan for that through the day? Are, are you changing what, what you're doing? Um, what, what does your diet look like? I'm just sort of interested in the, in, in the day-to-day. What, what have you changed to, to, to adapt to this, new, to this new reality? David, my diet is terrible, but I haven't adapted properly. The, the way you're supposed <laughs> to do it is you're supposed to heed the warnings, like Klitschko says, and get stock up on water and supplies and stuff. Uh, it, it, you know, I'm out on the road a lot covering stories, so you know, I come back and I just order. Uh, I, my experience mostly has been ordering delivery because I'm, you know, d- I'm working on something and I sometimes don't have time to cook. And I, I, I can tell you that like the delivery guys out here, it's called Glovo. Um, these guys walk in the snow, you know, there's an air raid siren. They're, they're, they're still delivering your food. Like, um, and th- to me, that's, that's just, you know, it's incredible that like, yes, yesterday I ordered from a restaurant and I heard like eight things, you know, and they were like, we have six of them. We don't have, like they had like coffee and like a salad and they're like, do you still want it? I'm like, sure. You know, that's fine. You know, they called me apologizing. And it's, it's just, uh, to me, it, it's crazy that there is no, there is no like excuses. There's no like, there's just kind of like, well, we can do this, you know, and, and, and people kind of make do. And, um, and again, if it was just like poor people going through this, it'd be one thing, but it's everybody like the high end restaurants, low end restaurants, you know, the, uh, the, the nice grocery store, the, the kind of, you know, working class grocery store, everybody's going through the same thing. You mentioned going to a, a bar yesterday. Can you paint us a picture there? What, what does it look like? What's the atmosphere like? Did you get a sense of what people, the patrons, are, are talking about, and, and, and who is who is going out? Are, is it you know? Is it is it the younger people? Is it everybody? Are some people staying staying in and cons- conserving heat? Or what? What? what could you paint us a little picture of what, what you saw yesterday? 
Yeah. So yesterday, what happens is when the missiles strike, like that day and, and the next couple of days, it, you know, people kind of stay in and, um, you know, people got to take care of things. And then gradually people come out again. And uh, once they come back out, it, it feels like, you know, a f- Kiev is Kiev. I mean, this is a very, you've been here. It, there's a lot of hipsters. It's a very um, cool city. People are, you know, dressed really really sometimes really elegantly and sometimes they're dressed like you know they they take a lot of effort to look you know kind of grungy but it's actually really well put together um and and people are having cocktails people are enjoying themselves um and and even the cocktails don't you know if they don't have the ingredients they'll kind of innovate something they won't kind of lazily put it together like you know people show up to work and kind of like are are trying to do their best and they're not you know they're not uh you know half-assing it i talked to the 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 manager uh and he was saying that um that you know when i first got there in march it was like they didn't know if they were going to keep their doors open but they're all you know this is what they do they're they're a bar like this is what they know how to do and and uh you know gradually they kind of changed up their dynamic they started having more comedy nights comedy nights here have become huge like stand-up comedy in ukraine because you only need like you know to go up there in an audience you don't need any special equipment or anything and that's become huge and, and people come out and they laugh together. A lot of the jokes are about the war. I mean, the comedy's all about, you know, they're, 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 they're talking about all the stuff they go through together, uh, they're making fun of Russia, obviously. But uh, the bars adapted in that way, right? They, they don't have as much, you know, uh, of the things they would like to do. And so, you know, uh, and, and that, that's been interesting. Um, walking around last night, for example, the city is super dark. I, and I can't, I, it's eerie. It's, it's pitch black. And there's fog because of, you know, the weather. And when cars drive around, you see there's just fog and there's these black buildings and the kind of people in the shadows. And if you were kind of going through this by yourself, you might feel a little afraid, but you realize like everybody is out. They're not afraid of, you know, the missiles. They're not afraid of the darkness. Uh, you know, you, you might walk to your favorite bar and it might be pitch black. And once you get in there, it's well lit and people are taking their coats off and, you know, having a good time. And, um, and almost like at, you know, one bar last night, they were like, Hey, look, we're, we're, trying to save up money for uh, to donate to the armed forces we're playing this we're playing the show tonight if you want to donate donate and and it's like that you know everything is even if you go out there's you know some some avenue to donate to the armed forces that's amazing what what was the show they were they were they were promoting do you know yeah it was some band it was at this kind of um hong kong themed bar and uh i i have to tell you david i i, I ducked out before the band started playing we, we wanted to get some some food uh so i ducked out that's fair enough can i ask um we, we are only you know sort of we're two we're two weeks into really tough winter from what it sounds like from 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 london um what do people talk at all about the months to come i mean this is if if you know if if the, if the water and heating and electricity continues being erratic and, and difficult this is going to this is going to continue i mean do, do people think like that i remember as you said you know when, when we were there a few people i talked to they said you know we don't we, we how can we plan for the, for the months ahead we don't know what's going to happen um, is that still what people say and do you get a sense of how people talk about uh the winter to come yeah people are, are kind of calculating out everything that just happened in the last two months they're, they're just you know they're they're allowing for that to keep happening they're basically uh assuming that missile strikes are going to keep happening that the electricity cuts are going to get worse and, and they the, the the electricity cuts have been getting worse you know there's a schedule at which they occur according to your neighborhood but th- that's been more predictable and it's really um just a quick aside there um i know one tech worker who 
you know, he he ha- he works for a UK company. You know, he's an he's an IT guy, and he he can't miss meetings, right? Like he doesn't tell his bosses that there's power outages and stuff because he doesn't want them. He doesn't want to be viewed as like, you know, he doesn't want to, don't want to get fired. You know, even though like these outages are not his fault. So the power outages aren't occurring on schedule. So he's had to like make like alliances with different tech workers to like jump through like different like offices that so if his bank is out of power he'll drive across to the other side to the other bank and go to another office that has power and that runs out of power or text somebody else and go to their office just to make all these meetings happen right so that that's really difficult but i think who's really you know he's not that concerned about it getting colder and you know electric electrical cuts because he can kind of manage the people who are who are really concerned are the ones who have families that are out of the country and who want to come back, you know, children, wives abroad in, in Poland or Germany. And basically they're making the hard decision right now to tell them to stay abroad because they're afraid of missiles. They're afraid of keeping their kids warm, you know, running water, you know, for 24, 48 hours, you can manage you know, a week out becomes extremely difficult. I mean, you know, in Mikolai, they use, you're using salt water, which is, you know, so hard on people. Um, so, the, I, the people I talk to who are, are really affected by this, the ones who are, who are dealing with little kids and, and what do you do here? You know, if they're abroad, you kind of have them ask them to stay abroad, which is David, that's, you know, it's been nine months now. That is really hard on any family. Um, to, you know, you think you're going to get your kids back. The war's going better. You know, it's getting, getting better for Ukraine, but you know, because of these missile strikes, like families are making the hard decision to kind of stay apart a little longer. Can I ask, um, we, we've spoken to, to you today and quite a few Ukrainians in the past week about, about um, how they're dealing with, with what's going on with the cuts, with the electricity cuts, the power shortages, shortages etc. Um, do you get, I mean, you sort of touched on it very early on in this conversation, but do you get a sense of what it's like not in Kyiv, not in the major cities, out in the country? Because that's a part of, of Ukraine. We, we, you know, most of the people we talk to are, are either working in Kyiv or based in Kyiv. Do you get a sense at all of what, what's happening elsewhere? Yeah, um, and, and that's mostly when I go out to the field, you know, to do some reporting. Uh, and I drive through a lot of cities, um, a lot of towns. The the smaller kind of rural towns that you know, not from not close to liberated areas, you know, they, you know, a, as we know about rural people, they're used to kind of sustaining themselves, and they have you know time time tested ways of kind of getting by. Where it gets really difficult is closer to the liberated areas because. Um, you know, the people, volunteers have to bring in, you know, uh, clean water, uh, the military or, or volunteers will bring in Starlinks or cell towers or they repair them. Um, if the humanitarian aid has to be on, you know, bringing in food and, and to the credit of, uh, the world central kitchen, like the one, like I, I, you know, I almost never want to give free publicity to nonprofits, but world central kitchen. Oh my God. I have seen those guys everywhere. Like in the worst areas, you know, while shelling is occurring, I've seen world central, world central kitchen, um, you know, operating. That's really tough. It, here in Kiev, um, you were talking about people going to the balcony to get uh, water. A lot of that is, is to, you know, you, you boil that and so you can use it to shower and bathe yourself um, because you can still buy water bottles here and, and you know, in, in any city here that you can, and they're, they're cheap, you know, and you can go and fill up a gallon of water or something. But in the more, in the liberated towns, everything gets exponentially harder because everything has to be brought in and that's relying on volunteers. It's relying on you know roads that are really badly damaged. Um, and because of the snow here, everything slows down. Like it is harder to move. Um, it, roads were already bad, bef- you know, before the the winter. But you can just imagine how tough it is now with the mud and everything uh, just to get around. 
Thanks, Sergio. Just one more question um, from me. You said you're you're leaving fairly soon, and in this conversation, you sound like you've been well, kind of profoundly moved by by what you've seen by the sort of community spirit, by the Blitz spirit demonstrated in 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 Kiev and and across Ukraine. Um, what are the sort of? I mean, I've got, I guess I've got two questions. One is, did did you expect that after after eight months? Is this is this surprising or not at all? And what? If there's a memory from the past few weeks that you will really take away and, and, and has a huge impact on you, would you share it with us? Yeah. Um, so before this, I covered extremism in the United States, uh, you know, uh, uh, kind of political and violent extremism. Uh, and there it was, you know, people, uh, my, my kind of takeaway from that was there was a lot of people felt lost and in the United States and kind of not attached to anything and without meaning and would kind of find these extreme groups and, and you know, there, a lot of problems have, have come from that, right? They form these very violent kind of gangs and, and beat people up or do violent things. And, you know, left, left that, came to Ukraine, and here um, there's a profound sense of meaning uh, uh, in everyday life here, and people are banded together in a way I have not seen outside of war. Um, I mean, the image of... A, a, during uh, one of the missile strikes, a doorman of a very nice, expensive building in Ukraine, um, you know, was holding the door open for people to run in to use the shelter. Um, I, I think about that because all of the class stuff, and they're just everybody is just like, "What do you need? You know, are you safe? Uh, you know." And um, e- even the kind of like coldness here, you know, people in buildings here, it's like don't talk to each other, right? Like neighbors, you know, they don't greet each other in the hallway. People just kind of walk past each other. But when, when, when the air raid sirens start and the missile strikes start, all of that falls away. And, and, you know, neighbors talk to each other, like, are you okay? Do you need anything? You know? Um, and, and, and I think that I suspected that that was the case that, you know, that, but I, I've really just fundamentally come to view societies so different. Like humans are much more resilient than I realized societies underneath all of this stuff is are way more resilient when they're going through something together. Um, people can get through so much. Um, and, uh, I, and I, that's one of the things I'm taking back home with me is that idea of that, um, you know, p- the missile, st- it, it is insane, David, that people here every week, you know, can like clockwork can expect missiles to rain down on them and they still like dress up really nice, you know, have a really nice croissant are exceedingly polite and warm. And, you know, when p- p- buildings get hit, like they, they have fr- first aid kits, they have uh, food, they, they help people. And, and like, that is the, that is the thought. It's like the, the idea of like, you know, getting, you know, of like even complaining is kind of like, they complain in a kind of humorous way to lift up someone else's spirit, you know? And, and I think about that, that resiliency and that just attitude that um, I, I, I can't, I can't say enough about. Well, thank you, Sergio. Um, Dom or Francis, I don't know who'd like to go first. Is there, if I go first, because I think it just comes, my question comes very much on the back of what Sergio was saying. And I think in a way he's actually answered it, which is I was going to ask is the extent to which it, life is on pause in Ukraine or the degree to which is actually accelerated and amplified. And what I mean by that is are people still starting relationships, having children, thinking about their careers or, or are people so you know, trying to get through each day that actually that's a struggle. But I really get the sense from from speaking to you, the extent to which people are very resilient and are carrying on as perhaps not as normal, but are not allowing this to impede their lives. But just interested in your real reflections on that. Yeah, I think a great example is this this um, kind of kid we've been using as a, as a fixer early on. He's 20 years old and he's studying journalism. 
and we started using him as a fixer. He's now fixed for like a bunch of different media companies. And uh, my sense was like, it's so incredibly unfair that he has to stop doing university and has to like, you know, he, his, he can't, he can't he, all that stuff is on pause because of this war, which is not his fault. You know, all these, a lot of 20 year olds are out in the field, you know, uh, they're digging trenches or they're, you know, driving around in trucks and all their regular life is on pause because of this war. And again, it's not their fault. And it's so incredibly unfair. Uh, you know, all these kids out of school, it's unfair, but take that 20 year old. He started fi- doing, you know, fixture work for all these companies and the amount of stuff he's learned in the last, you know, nine months and the, 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 the growth. I mean, this, this guy has seen some really terrible stuff. He's had to comfort. I've seen him comfort grandmas, you know, after telling, you know, talking about their, their lost grandchildren. I've seen him, you know, talk to fathers who are talking about their daughters being raped and just all this stuff that it's way too much for a 20 year old. You know, he's just grown so much and matured in a way that like, I, I, you know, he's not like a 20 year old, you know, back home in California where I'm from. And when this war ends, you know, I, I don't think he needs to go to university to study journalism. Like, I think he could teach a class, you know, and in some ways, like it's incredibly unfair that life is paused for all these people. But I don't think that I would ever look at like someone like him with pity. I, I'd say that I have I have like more to learn from him than I have to teach him, you know. They, and I think that's the, the other thing here is that Ukrainians need a lot of things. They need like anti-air defense and they need stuff to fix their electrical grid and they need you know stuff to get through the winter. They need materials and supplies and, and support. But in terms of teaching, like, I think they are our teachers. Like, there's so much that we would want to learn from them that I think we want to take back to our societies to make ours more resilient. Because, um, they, you know, I don't think they, they, they need lessons from us. I, I, you know what I mean? Sergio, hi, it's Dom here. Thanks so much for, for joining us. Really appreciate it every time you every time you do so. Um, can I take you back to the bar? I love bars. I love everything about bars and pubs. Uh, just you know, absolutely everything. I, I'm fascinated. What is what's the chat in the bar? Is it all dominated by the war? Is there, is there room for anything else? Um, yeah, is President Zelensky's nightly address being spoken about? Are they pouring over it over there as much as we are over here? This kind of thing. And finally, in the chat in the bar, is there any? split in society is, t- is putting too much emphasis on it but but for example the people in Kiev who are under under huge threat and, and daily bombardment and all the, the power um, strikes that we that we've been talking about but I just wonder is there a feeling that they are you know different from the people in Hezon and Kharkiv and in the in the Donbass and the people are on the line of control is there any kind of feeling that that, that Ukrainian society writ large is um is starting to not fracture at all but but to sort of see a difference amongst themselves so on the fracturing and stuff uh, for example in the bar you're going to have somebody who's from kirsan or somebody from kharkiv or and you know in the bar last night for example uh, uh the bar manager is from kiev but the the shisha master he's from kharkiv and uh and like you know and i think his wife is you know from the south somewhere so like there's nobody like there's no room full of just people from kiev like everybody's especially now with so much of the movement you know everybody's from somewhere else or has family somewhere else so there's you know nobody is like ah that's happening to them that attitude doesn't exist you know everything is happening you know to us that that is really the attitude here and the what's the conversation like in the bar um there's this joke that you know if you walk away from a table and you come back and you're you're you know you listen in and 
and uh, you say like, you know, what are we talking about? You could just say, you know, oh, we're talking about the war. Like 70% of the conversation is always revolving around the war in some way. Um, I am a foreigner, so that's, it's probably going to be tilted that way whenever I'm in a conversation. But, you know, the, the, it's hard to get away from the war. I mean, um, that being said, though, uh, no one's really talking about Zelensky's nightly address like at all. And I know that sounds weird, but I think that Zelensky, um, he's, he's really interesting. He, he, uh, if you listen to his addresses, they're really aimed kind of at, you know, the rest of the world. I, I don't think that Ukraine, like, for example, Ukrainians don't really need, like, a pep talk. You know, they're pretty, they're, like, motivated. They're all, you know, they don't need to be coached, really. Um, and I don't think they view Zelensky's addresses in that way. I, I think Zelensky's really talking to the rest of the world to try to, like, keep the rest of the world kind of, you know, motivated to keep supporting Ukraine. Um, I, I know that, the, that for, like, the thing that struck me after a couple months here was that I realized that why people here don't view Zelensky the same way that we foreigners do, which is um, we look at Zelensky and we're like, man, this guy stayed. He chose like his, you know, he chose his country. He's an honorable guy. You know, he, he's really putting his money where his mouth is. And the reason that is like everybody here is doing that too. Like everybody here made the same choice Zelensky did. So for them, they're just like, yeah, he's just, he's just another, you know, superb politician, superb leader, but you know, not, you know, a superhero that like they're all making that same choice. Um, so no, they don't really discuss the nightly dresses, you know, um, but I, 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 I find that interesting. And, and in terms of the pub culture and all that, it's great, Dom. Um, people here uh, live life. And I think that's probably a case anywhere where death is nearby. Um, you know, they they do revere life and they're not, uh, you know, uh, s- people are not with sunken shoulders. I mean, they're they're at, at the pub. They're having a great time. They're telling jokes. There's so much humor here which is hard to communicate because it's war, you know, and people die. And, but there's so much humor and, um, and there's so much generosity. Um, it, it, it is, it, I, it is, it is it, one of the things in the, in the Western countries I've noticed is, you know, there's a lot of kind of, you know, bartenders will be kind of mean to you and there's a kind of coolness and, and that doesn't exist here. Like everybody, you know, you go to a bar and people are so friendly and just kind of, you know, they're happy to chat. If I could just jump in there, I was very interested in what you were just saying there, Sergio, about the significance of Zelensky's speeches or or lack thereof amongst the Ukrainian people. And when you said particularly that you know, Zelensky made a decision that people had already made, you know, that he was not actually perhaps that unusual. In some ways, that goes counter to the orthodox view, which is that it was absolutely critical for Zelensky to sh- to stay because he then provided uh, a, a, an example to, to to emulate and also because it showed the rest of the world that, that, that there was somebody that the leader was not going to leave and that actually um, Kiev was going to, to be held. Um, so... I suppose my it's a difficult question, this, um, and perhaps you haven't got a definitive answer yet. But I just wonder the extent to which do you think that even if Zelensky had not made that decision, that it wouldn't have mattered, that Ukrainians would have still fought as hard and that, that actually, even if he had had left the country, that there would have been this heroic defense of Kiev? Or do you actually still think that his decision was integral and that what we're seeing now is uh, in some ways a reflection of the inspirational leadership that's been that's been led from the top, not just of him and his cabinet? So it's just interesting in your reflections on that. Yeah, no, see, like, I, I think it's integral. And I, I view him as a, as a Churchill figure. But I think what, what I'm, I think what I'm trying to say is that I'm not sure, like, I think, I'm viewing that that as a remarkable decision. And I think the attitude amongst Ukrainians is more like, 
you know, a fish swimming in water, water where they're just kind of like, what decision, you know, like, what other decision did he have? Like, flee. like, to them, they're just kind of like, you know, why would he, why would he flee? This is his country. I, I think what I'm, is just that the idea to stay and fight and to, you know, that it's so kind of obvious and um, not really a decision to like the average Ukrainian here that they're, they're not viewing it as this kind of momentous you know uh, moment that to them it's just kind of like that's the natural that's the logical decision is to stay and fight um which again just speaks to the the it speaks to like the the like i guess i'm not trying to i'm not trying to bring Zelensky down I, i'm just trying to elevate the average ukrainian person which all they all made that decision which is incredible Sergio, if I could ask one final question, if I may, and you, and you, you say there about the, the humour, the amount of humour that is in everyday conversation and in the bars. And that was, I was going to ask about that. I mean, in amongst all the, the, the Herculean efforts to keep power going and, 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 and society running, you know, physically, technically running, um, have you seen an uptick? Do you feel there's an uptick in efforts to keep the arts going? So the arts being... You know, to my simple simple mind, only got a only got an O level. Um, arts that you know feed the soul. It's society's mindfulness. It's the way of working out working through these these traumas. There's a lot of mental health issues to come. I have no doubt. But I just wonder if right now, right here and now, in amongst this, and it might be black humor, but I just wonder humor uh, and and all the other forms of the arts. Have you noticed a kind of an increased effort to of self expression and and sort of societal societal means of trying to work through this this trauma don that's such a great question because yes it's like two degrees here in kiev there's snow outside i i went right before i came inside i saw a, a guitarist and a violinist playing music playing their heart out for like two or three people on the street you know uh, buskers right and and they were there in this in the summer and they're still there in the snow and i think the the attention to art here what i've noticed is that it's not like entertainment like the, the 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 i think people look at art in like a kind of the way they like this is this is this is not to entertain me this is you know this is necessary like we need this we need to like we need to you know the, the when i was in kharkiv there was like members of the kharkiv orchestra that had banded together to play some music for people in a kind of shelter and um they were playing uh, um, just, the, you know, not the full orchestra. Uh, they were playing some songs and then they played this Ukrainian song and people were crying. And, you know, it's like in another night, if you're in New York or something, you go out to see an orchestra, that might be a great night. It might be really interesting and, and a pleasure. I think here the art is is different. It's it's art, not for pleasure, but, you know, for something deeper. And and those guys playing in the snow right now, they're not doing it for the, you know, the you know few hundred, you know, maybe a thousand, two thousand green they're going to get. You know, they're doing it because it, it means something to defy, uh, you know, I will not be cowed into giving up my violin. I will play in the snow under these terrible conditions. And, and people, I think, take something from that. You know, the comedy nights here, the, the, the way that uh, stand-up comedy has exploded here, um, people are coping through all the, this hardships through this, like, burgeoning art form here where, you know, you don't need expensive equipment. You don't need power or electricity. You just need a, somebody to stand up in front of an audience and talk about tough things in a humorous way. Uh, the, that's, that, that is, the, you know, art means something beyond entertainment here. And I, 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 I have felt that. I, 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 you know, I have cried watching some of these musicians play. And, um, you know, it's, it's incredible to see. 
Well, thank you very much, Sergio, for all of that. Dom and Francis, we're starting to come at just the end of our time today. So can I just ask Dom and Francis, any more updates from either of you or shall we go to our final thoughts? I do have an update, David, if that's all right, on a very interesting interview with Angela Merkel in Der Spiegel. Indeed, I've been brushing up on my German this morning in order to read it. It's caused quite a bit of interesting discussion this morning, her remarks, as all of her interventions do, given her prominence in Germany as Chancellor over many, many years prior to the invasion. And her comments are, as I say, very interesting. She talks about her final encounters with Putin and said that says that throughout her farewell visit to Moscow in August 2021, she felt that she didn't have the political strength to try and stop Putin. And she says, in terms of power politics, you're done. And for Putin, only power counts. But interestingly, it seems to be that she's saying that there was an awareness in Germany that something was up, you know, that there was a very high likelihood of something going very wrong in Ukraine. Now, if that's true, that would counter some of the views that we've heard in recent months that that question the idea of of whether Germany was really aware about what was what was going to happen or whether they were sort of in denial as it were so quite an interesting observation that uh, she then talks about how she tried or considered trying to set up an independent european discussion panel with Putin uh, as part of a collective effort with the French president Emmanuel Macron, but that she realised she no longer had the clout in which to do so herself. So she says, um, again, you can imagine that some people are saying, you know, this is a leader who is said to have had the closest relationship with Putin, who herself spoke spoke Russian. You know, this, 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 that she should have tried to do more is what some people are saying this morning. And then she defends herself and her record, saying that with the then US President Barack Obama. We tried everything after Russia's annexation of Crimea in 2014 to prevent further incursions by Russia into Ukraine and coordinated our sanctions, our sanctions in detail. Uh, so, again, you know, the, I think there is it's fair to say that there was a lot that was done after 2014. Indeed, the, the military support that was provided by Britain, by other European powers, by America has proved absolutely vital in Ukraine's defence now. But nonetheless, I think many would question the idea that they've done everything because look at how much has been done now in terms of the severity of sanctions since the invasion that were not done in 2014. And had they been, had the position been much clearer, then I think that many would argue that we wouldn't be here now. And just one final thing that she said, it, and I'll re- quote this directly, it is devastating that few diplomatic solutions work, and yet there is no viable alternative in sight. Again, this is being questioned by people. People are saying, well, actually, there is a solution in sight, and it's a military one, that you defeat Putin on the battlefield, and the whole situation changes, that Russia is pushed out, and maybe Putin is, out of, is, is, is ousted from power. That actually, it is not all down to a diplomatic solution, in the sense of there being some kind of peace plan that's brokered that enables perhaps Putin to keep some territory, and etc. So, as I say, a, an interesting interview, which no doubt we'll analyse again, perhaps with Dr. Thomas Klaus, at some point in the coming weeks as a context of of what's going on in Germany at the moment. But just one other piece of news from Germany, which I think is is interesting to reflect on in correlation with that. Uh, 
Germany has said that it is set to declare the 1930s starvations of millions in Ukraine under Stalin as a genocide. This is according to a draft text uh, of, of, of MPs who are set to approve the resolution in Germany, adopting some language that have been used in Kiev. And the plan is, is that this is intended to send a warning to Russia in the context of what's going on in the hunger crisis in Ukraine at the moment and, and obviously the energy blockades and everything else else to say, you know, that we are setting up the foundation works here legally in which to charge you one day when the war is over for these heinous acts. So as I say, even though it's an event in the 1930s, its context is to is to frame that in terms of putting pressure on Russia that they're not forgetting of what they, Russia has done in the past in Ukraine and what they've done now. Now, I should say that what is this event in the 1930s? It's the uh, Holodomir, it's called, um, uh, the famine that was essentially caused by Stalin uh, in the 20th century. Millions of people died, as I say, in Ukraine. And this is absolutely an integral cultural event in the Ukrainian consciousness, one that really has roused this anger against Russia um, for many, many decades now and is, as I say, significant. Now, just one other piece of comment here, trying to bring together these two, in some ways, you could argue contradictory things. Some will argue that how is it possible for Germany to be so robust on this question of genocide, yet seemingly so unsteady with regards to providing military support? proceeding and in the early months of the invasion. But as I say, rather than seeing them as a contradiction, it's more likely actually, I think, the opposite. There's a cultural thread that's existed in Germany ever since the Second World War. And indeed, there's a word for, for it, which is Vergangenheitsbewältigung, uh, which means working through the past, describing this process uh, since the second half of the 20th century of, 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 sort of post-1945 German literature, society and culture. And one thread of this is the particular attention that is paid to genocide committed by the Nazis. In contrast to Russia, of course, where the gulags also killed millions, just like the German concentration camps, but there's been a silence in Russia. Um, note the suppression of Memorial, which was one of the Nobel Prize winners this year. In Germany, memory of the genocide is at the absolute centre of cultural understanding and anxieties about ensuring that such events never happen again. But there's another side to the Gang and Heizbibaltigung, which is this unease about militarization and anxiety about the German propensity to engage militarily in Europe due to this sort of residual fear that such things do not end well. So there's this phenomena, and this is what the argument is, that it's both liberatory and an impediment that uh, this cultural memory advocates for a liberal view on the importance of preventing war and genocide. But again, one could argue, an overly liberal view on how to achieve this prevention, a cultural outlook that's not robust or hawkish enough with regard to military intervention, leading to this sort of defensive vacuum in Central Europe. That was always the concern of Margaret Thatcher, which is why that she had this very controversial, sceptic view of German reunification. But where does that leave us with regard to Germany? Well, I think at present, their commitment on the military front remains very, very significant, and I want to underline that. But the question on many people's lips now is the scale of German commitment as we enter a very difficult winter and the degree to which the German political establishment are really committed to severing themselves from energy and business ties with Germany and Russia in the long term. That may be a decision that is ultimately in the hands of German voters, but as I say, a crucial one for the weeks and months ahead. Well, thanks for that, Francis. I've been doing this for nine months. I didn't know you spoke German. That's learning something new every day. So thank you very much for that, Francis. Ambition. <laughs> Dom, anything more from you? 
Um, uh, no, uh, no update. No further updates for me. I can't. I can't really follow um, Francis. I couldn't really follow when he, when he was talking. But I just reiterate that I do love going to pubs. Thanks very much, Dom. Um, useful stuff. Well, we're com- coming to the end of our time today, I think. So, can I just go to all of you just for your final thoughts ahead of ahead of the weekend? Um, Dom and Francis, do you want to go first, and we'll leave the very final thoughts to Sergio in Kiev. Yeah, well, just just quickly, nine months in now, um, our thoughts have been turning to well, what so, so what what have we, what have we learned? What do we what do we take from it? And I just just very briefly have been thinking about any any turning points in the war, and I've been trying to think of when did uh, external support, so the countries outside outside Ukraine. Um, think what were the turning points when did those external partners think Ukraine would survive and when did they think if they do think Ukraine could win and on the former I think when they they thought it survive I think it was literally right that first day when President Zelensky said uh, I don't need a ride I need ammunition I think that was that was such a powerful statement that I think a lot of people went yeah yeah well he's got to say that he's the president but actually there was that little kind of little in the back of the mind thinking hey this guy is a yeah, you know, that's that's pretty powerful. And then you had the defense of Kiev in the first few weeks. And then you had like things like the sinking of the Moskva. And I think the external support then thought, you know, what these guys, they're not going to quit. And, and, and I think they I think they might be able to do this. And I think something like the Kharkiv offensive, uh, maybe less so Hezon, uh, but certainly Kharkiv, that breakthrough a few months ago. Um, I think that's when the externals really thought they, they could do this and then started going in in some measure. I know HIMARS and, and other long range um, uh, artillery and missiles had been supplied up to then. But I think that, would, that was really the point there. Um, in terms of Russia, when do they think when do they think Ukraine is going to survive? I think that was, again, the defense of Kiev. Um, when did Russia, if they if they acknowledge such, when do they think Ukraine's actually win this? I think it was things like um, the uh, Sevastopol uh, drone attack, or possibly even when when Sevastopol or, or um, Crimea was hit with long-range artillery, uh, the Kirsch Bridge, and definitely when they've switched their attacks in recent weeks to um, terrorising civilians. So they know they're losing on the on the battlefield. So all they've got left is is the diplomatic front, and they're and they're trying to work they're trying to work that. As for when you Ukraine, I can't, obviously can't speak for them. Would never would never attempt to but uh, you know if i was applying the same sort of lens when did when did you think you could survive when do you think you could win to y- ukraine society and ukrainians well pff, n- never been in doubt that's that's pl- plainly obvious to us all now and i think it's when these three things align that there'll be a major breakthrough i'm i'm not sure if that will come this side of spring but i do think that everything points towards something fairly monumental happening before next summer Thank you, Tom. Francis Turnley. Well, I apologise if my analysis of Germany was a bit too much for a Friday afternoon. I too like pubs. I just want to emphasise that. Um, but yes, uh, just my final thought also is coming off the back of what Don was saying there and reflecting on nine months. I think for me too, the holding of Kiev was absolutely integral for everything that followed. I think it was integral for sustaining the integrity of, of Kiev's is in the government's commitment to to d- defending the whole of the country. I think it was integral for operating as a standard bearer for the rest of the people in Ukraine, um, that they were not going to be abandoned by their leaders. And I think it was also absolutely integral for how the West viewed the war in Ukraine. Um, and I think also as well, just to echo Dom, I think the Kharkiv counteroffensive was also vital as well for totally changing the sense of momentum uh, and the sense in which the 
Ukraine may not only be able to hold off the Russians, but actually launch a successful military operation. And it set the tone for this winter in a way that was really vital, just as did Herzon. Well, thank you, Dom and Francis. Sergio, uh, you're in Kiev. Would you like the final words? Two things. The first is um, before coming to Ukraine, I covered hundreds of protests in the United States. And I became skeptical of whether, you know, how much effect a protest had. Now, my takeaway after eight months here is that protests really matter. Maidan, you know, the protest eight years ago here, um, it matters so much. And that, that you know, the effect that had, we, we could, you know, you couldn't have foreseen it down the line, but Maidan really matters. And, it, and I'm taking that away that protests, even small ones, you know, can lead to something uh, that matters for, for the trajectory of a country. So that's one thing I'm taking away. The second thing is um, I, I think like shared stories and, and, um, and communal hardship uh, you can't underestimate like how much a society you know how strong a society can be because of that um, I, one one thing here is everybody is on the same page everybody understands the war everybody if you ta- ask anybody they'll say well well if we don't fight you know they they'll turn us into bucha and so we have to fight and it's 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 that it the, you, they can explain it in a sentence you know nobody stutters or um, it, it has to think about it everybody understands that and you know, I, my, you know, the United States was at war for you know, uh, you know, a long time. You know, fourteen years or something. And you, you ask people why were you at war? Why were we, were we at war? And people would stutter. And people would have a clear answer. And um, I think that because here everybody knows why they're fighting, um, and everybody has the same story. Everybody's sharing the story, and there's a shared reality, and there's shared suffering. Poor or, or rich, you know, you're, you're out of water. Or the missile can hit anywhere in the city. You know, it doesn't matter if you live in a nice building. Um, I think that that means that society just get through so much, and and, you, and it's really hard to break them. And uh, and I and I, they're almost anti fragile. The more missiles that rain down here, the the more sure people are that they they will not surrender. And and I think about that, and I will take that away with me. Here's an excerpt from my colleague Stephen Edgington's conversation with analyst Mark Galliotti. To hear the full conversation, search for Offscript in your podcast app. So we're coming into the winter. How is that going to impact the war in Ukraine? The winter is likely to lead to a certain slowing down of offensive operations. We shouldn't just treat the winter as being one unvariated block. Ukraine's winters more or less go through three, three cycles, shall we say. Autumn, about now, is when rains come. Skies close and the soil largely gets turned to, to a very sticky mud, which makes it much harder to be able to operate. But then, assuming it's a cold winter, which on one level Ukraine must be hoping not, given the degree to which Russia has been hammering its infrastructure, its electrical infrastructure, and you know, it could, could well be a very hard winter for them. But nonetheless, if it is a cold winter, then the mud freezes. And once again, offensive operations become possible until the thaw comes I think we have everyone getting glued down where they are. There are going to be variations. Clearly, the Russians are hoping to use winter as a chance to consolidate their forces on their new defensive line since they've withdrawn from Kherson. As they prepare and train up the bulk of the mobilised reservists, probably about 150,000 or so people, into scratch units, which can then be deployed come spring. The Ukrainians will be wanting to do what they can to prevent the Russians from doing that. So at the very least, we're going to see constant harassing fire, long-range artillery and the like, which again is going to put quite a demand on the supply lines, uh, providing them with the necessary ammunition for that. 
and then we'll also perhaps see some local offensives. But as I said, I think that probably Ukraine's forces are not just not really going to be able to do very much in, in winter because of conditions, but also they've been fighting at quite a hard tempo. It's very hard to be sure, but certainly we're getting some indications that they've reached a stage where they too need to stop and draw breath and re-equip and rearm. How would you assess both sides' morale at the moment? Clearly, Ukrainian morale, worlds apart from the Russian, not only are they fighting for their homeland, but as far as they're concerned, rightly, they're winning. They've had these sort of extraordinary victory in the north, in the Kharkiv offensive, and now they've taken back Kherson without having to go into the kind of nasty, gritty, street-by-street fighting that really would, would have been a very bloody experience. They're riding high, but again... They've been taking some heavy casualties too. The estimate is that basically between dead and wounded, both sides have basically suffered about 100,000 casualties, which is no small amount. And I think, again, there, there are certain pressures. We can sometimes fall prey to an easy assumption that because the Ukrainians are, in our view, the good guys, and because there's much more enthusiasm and support for them, that you know, everyone is happy. The answer is not. But generally speaking, the Ukrainians are in a very positive frame of mind. Or the Russians, clearly not. However, again, I think we need to treat that with some caution. Yes, the Russians are clearly unhappy. It's not just that they're losing the war, a war that for most soldiers, they don't really understand why they're fighting for it, fighting it. But at the same time, many of them, they're, they're cold, they're hungry, their supply processes are really not really working well. But except when we see a kind of a generalized collapse in morale usually because people are outflanked and so forth on the whole the main thing is most russians are still russian soldiers in the field are still willing to fight either because of unit morale or just simply because they fear the consequences otherwise but in in effect that doesn't really matter so we're not seeing the kind of massive collapse of morale yet at least but i do think that russian morale is brittle and if the Ukrainians manage to make some kind of unexpected breakthrough, we could see that becoming really quite a major problem. I mean, this was one of the concerns about the withdrawal from Kherson, which seems to have actually been done really very effectively. If it had actually turned into a rout, panic can be contagious, and we could have seen a whole segment of the Russian front line basically falling back. And the Russians have a serious problem with morale, even if at present they're basically managing to hold their line. Is there any way for the Russians to turn this around, to turn the war around for them? Because, I don't know, as you say, the amount of weapons from the West that they're up against, it might make it impossible. It's certainly very hard to see any kind of real likelihood, because even with the additional new troops, and let's be honest, 150,000 troops, even if they're bad troops, but these mobilised reservists, they're being equipped with old-fashioned weapons and so forth, but it's still 150,000 fresh new troops. But nonetheless, what we're actually seeing is that at the very moment when Ukraine is acquiring a 21st century army, thanks to the training and supplies that we're providing, Russia is increasingly fielding a late Soviet army, a 19th, sorry, a 20th century army with kit from the 1960s and 1970s. In those circumstances, I cannot see how Russia can really make anything other than the most minor local gains on the battlefield. And this is what it comes down to. This is why Putin's strategy is now to try and drag the war out. If he can outlast the West's will to continue to support Ukraine, then he can hope that he can impose some kind of a deal on Ukraine that probably would see the territories currently under Russian control, perhaps continuing to be under Russian control. I think that's his best possible scenario, and I don't think it's likely to happen. But the point is, at present, that's the best he's got, so he'll cling to that particular hope. 
So let's talk about your book. I've got it here, Putin's Wars. And you've also written other books about Putin. This is someone that you've thought about a lot, I can imagine. When he became president 20 years ago, was this war in Ukraine always going to happen? Was it inevitable? No, I think this is one of the one of the fears. Human beings are great pattern recognition animals, and we look at dots and we immediately draw lines between them. Now, look, when Putin came to power, look, of course, he was imbued with the kind of values and mindset of his generation, that kind of last true homo sovieticus generation. And he didn't really think that countries like Ukraine had genuine sovereignty. You know, as far as he was concerned, their rightful place was in Russia's sphere of influence. And that was always evident. It did not necessarily have to lead to war. The things that, you know, the, the reasons that led to war are in part about the changes in Putin himself. No one stays in power for 22 years, especially as essentially the autocrat, without being changed, warped, distorted by the process, and in many ways almost becoming a caricature of himself. Secondly, this is the aging process. I think that he decided that he needed some kind of great triumph to consolidate his legacy and possibly allow him safely to leave office. But also just the developments in geopolitics in that time. It is clear that without in any way wanting to support Putin's paranoid narrative about evil, nefarious NATO plots to encroach on and eventually humble Russia, nonetheless, there were some serious blunders in the messaging and the presentation of how NATO envisaged its relationship with Ukraine and also how the European Union envisaged it. We can't get away from the fact that what was the real spark for all of this. It was actually Ukraine's 2013 treaty that it was going to sign with the European Union that at first Moscow didn't have a problem with until in summer 2013 someone pouring through the details of what was after all a very fat legal document realised that it would actually lock Ukraine away from a lot of economic cooperation with Russia. And the belief was this is actually some kind of EU plot to, in effect, steal Ukraine. Now, I don't believe it was a plot like that for a moment. I think it was just this is what happens when you have a treaty that is drawn up by trade lawyers who aren't really fully aware of the geopolitical implications and no one else really thought about it. And at that point, there was that sense of, OK, Ukraine is now the new battleground. So there's all kinds of reasons, and frankly, even in the very, very last week of the, before the invasion, it looks that Putin, although he probably had decided to act, but he was still true to form, because not, this is not a daring man, was havering. He was not sure, you know, should he invade at all? And if so, the all-out invasion, or just simply to take the, essentially the areas he's fighting in now, the south and east of the country. Really, up to that point, it might have conceivably been possible for the dice to have fallen a different way. So we shouldn't assume things are inevitable. But on the other hand, this is absolutely, you might say, Putin's war in the sense of it's a product of his assumptions and prejudices. And although he is a more extreme form of himself, shall we say, now, today's Putin one can see in the year 2000 vintage Putin. Can you talk a little bit about Putin's wars, why they were successful, why he got away with them, and why in Ukraine in 2022 it was a different story. Yes, look, Putin is in many ways a very old-fashioned nationalist. He's really a 19th century geopolitician. I think a Bismarck or a Napoleon would have totally understood him. And I say 19th rather than say 18th because it's not just that might makes right and that strong countries impose their will on weaker ones. It's also this almost colonial mindset of the time. 
that there are, shall we say, proper countries, and then there's the rest whose sovereignty is really destined to be just simply determined by other countries. So I think you very much see that he sees the West as, generally speaking, kind of proper countries, countries like Ukraine, they're, they're secondary ones. And his notion of Russia as a great power was right from the beginning inextricably linked with war fighting capability. Russia has to be a military great power. He's determined to believe that Russia has to be a great power, even though it's no longer anything like the sort of powerful as the Soviet Union. And his view was that, that could be asserted through military power. And if you have military power, you need to demonstrate it. But the interesting thing is, essentially right up to this war, Putin, by luck or by good judgment, essentially picked easily winnable wars. The Second Chechen War actually turned out to be much more hard fought than anticipated, but still, ultimately, there was no real question that Chechnya would be actually be able to stand up against the whole might of a mobilized Russia. Likewise, his invasion of Georgia, tiny Georgia, it was a five-day war, despite the fact that there were many blunders by the Russians, but again, the outcome was never in doubt. Annexation of Crimea in 2014, again, a very sort of surgical operation at a time when basically the Ukrainian state had virtually collapsed. And then his military deployment into Syria, kept at essentially a pretty small footprint, largely just air forces, bombing insurgents who didn't have air defences from a nice safe height. Again, this is it. The interesting thing is that despite all the macho posturing, Putin ultimately was always a very cautious warmonger. He wanted the trappings of being a warlord without the risks. And then this seems to be the paradox with this war. And I will confess, when it actually happened, there was a part of me thinking, basically, did I get Putin wrong? Has or has he changed? And I think, though, what then emerged became clear that actually, for Putin, this was not going to be a big deal. This was not going to be a long war. It was going to be a two-week operation. He convinced himself that Ukraine was not a real state. The Ukrainian people would basically welcome the Russian liberators, or at the very least, just accept a fait accompli. A supine, hypocritical West would wring its hands and bring out some minor sanctions, but essentially do very little and do that too late. In that circumstance, from his point of view, this was a relative no-brainer. It was going to be an easy win and a great triumph. And then, because in a way, Belarus has already been brought into the Russian fold, he would have united the three great Russian Slavic heartland nations, Russia, Ukraine, and Belarus. And that's it. He's now Vladimir the Great, regatherer of the Russian lands or whatever. So each time, this has actually been a man who tries to be quite cautious, tries to go for easy wins, but it's a man who doesn't really understand modern warfare. It doesn't, he has no, almost no military experience. He just did a sort of cursory reserve officer training when he was at university back in the 1970s. And he had no idea what he was biting off when he went into Ukraine. Ukraine The Latest is an original podcast by The Telegraph. To stay on top of all of our Ukraine news, analysis and dispatches from the ground, subscribe to The Telegraph. You can get your first 30 days completely free at telegraph.co.uk forward slash audio. You can also listen to this conversation live at 1pm each weekday on Twitter Spaces. Follow The Telegraph on Twitter so you don't miss it. If you enjoyed this podcast, please consider following Ukraine The Latest on your preferred podcast app. And, if you have a moment, do leave a review, as it helps others find the show. To our listeners on YouTube, for reasons beyond our control, there's sometimes a delay between broadcast and upload, so if you do want to hear an episode as soon as possible, it's available on your podcast apps. Please search for Ukraine The Latest on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or your preferred app. Check out the Ukraine page on the Telegraph website. 
As ever, you can get in touch directly to ask questions or give comments by emailing podcasts at telegraph.co.uk. We do read every message. We are especially interested to hear where you are listening from around the world. Ukraine The Latest is produced by Louisa Wells and Giles Gear, and on Twitter, Jaden Irving. <laughs>